Hello and welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. I'm David Breer and I'm joined by my colleagues and co-hosts Will White and Naz Ahmed. How's it going guys? Great, thanks. Good. Very good. On today's show, we're going to be talking about financial crime. So, I mean, I know you guys work at 11FS, but do you want to give a bit of a context of why you put your hand up to be on this show? Naz, maybe you first. Uh, so prior to working at 11FS, I was head of compliance and for a very brief period, MLRO at Tandem, which is one of the Neo Challenges. And before that, uh, I worked for Lloyds Banking Group and RBS. My last role at RBS was head of risk for their retail counter account business. So obviously AML front and centre of a lot of what we did, particularly know your customer and identification and verification checks. Very good. And uh, what about you, Will? Yep, so prior to 11FS, I was uh, COO at Loot, uh, where I was the functional money laundering reporting officer um, under Wirecard, and I was the data protection officer at the same time, so um, both people in the room super relevant for. Um, and then prior to that, I was very early team member at Monzo, so I saw some of the uh, the early challenges uh, they faced and, and how they addressed them, which was super interesting. Very good. Not just pretty faces. You're here for a purpose, which is nice. All right. Well, this is, I guess, probably one of the biggest issues of the industry right now, especially for anybody who's starting out a new bank or a fintech venture, for that matter. Um, we're going to be taking a bit of a deep dive into how it manifests itself and what we're doing to try and solve it. So we're joined by some super special guests on this side. So first up, we have Francesca Hopwood-Road, who is the head of RegTech and Advanced Analytics at the FCA. How's it going? Very good, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Great, thanks for joining us. And also we have Simon McDougall, who is the Executive Director, Technology, Policy and Innovation at the ICO. How's it going? Hey, David. Good to be here. Great. All right, well, let's get on with the show. I guess before we start, really, it'd be good to try and define what this is, because, I mean, financial crime is put into a bit of a, a bucket of covering sort of multitude of sins, but who wants to have a stab at actually just defining what financial crime is? So from an FCA point of view, I mean, you're right. It does cover a multitude of sins. I mean, we define it as any kind of criminal conduct relating to money or financial services or markets, covering things like money laundering, terrorist financing, fraud, bribery and corruption, insider dealing, market manipulation. It's a long list. Um, And I think it kind of, that speaks to some of the complexity of kind of some of the issues that we will be covering today about how we tackle it and both as regulators and firms and you know others within the kind of wider regulatory community nice Naz, what do you think that uh, does that encapsulate everything you did in your jobs um it, it did i mean i think i think probably the interesting part we'll get onto is how banks and financial services firm deal with such a wide subject so the definition we're just given is all encompassing but actually i think when we get into it, you'll find that financial services firms will divvy that up into several individual pieces. And actually, that's one of the problems they'll have, because often you need a holistic view of what is going on to be able to identify this type of thing. Hmm. How about you, Will? Uh, yeah, um, Naz is right. One of the interesting challenges I've seen with two startups is um, you often have one type of criminality that you listed there, and then that becomes the name for everything. Mm-hmm. So you get people saying, oh, this is anti-money laundering or AML, and then it's like, well, no, that, that's actually fraud, or that's a concern that we're trying to address regarding sanctions or um, terrorism. But because it's usually the thing that was most painful when we first saw it, that becomes the, the catch-all name for everything rather than a, like a wider financial crime 
the holistic view um, is, is, is actually an interesting challenge that you have when you're running these businesses because you, you, you see more and more crimes come through that you want to prevent, mm-hmm. but the name often sticks with the first one you saw. So <laughs> yeah. it's quite strange. What do you think, Simon? Anything to add to that? I mean, no is a good answer. It's up to you. But uh, I mean, essentially, it's, it's such a catch-all for so many different things, isn't it? It's, it, it's, and it is bewildering. I, I've, in my past life, I did a lot of work on uh, sanctions, uh, and there you're dealing with huge amounts of money whizzing around the world and goods and getting into to nasty countries for, for bad things. And yet this term also goes all the way through to, you know, rather rudimentary fraud, um, you know, affecting the old ladies who are getting duped. So, so that, and it, it is a real challenge to make sure that everything is covered. Yeah. And I, and I think on, on this, it's, um, you know, very often I think the ramifications of financial crime are often sort of missed. You know, it's there's lots of different acronyms, but we're essentially talking about, you know, only something like 1% of all anti-money uh, money laundering is actually being picked up at all globally. And that means that 99% of the, the you know, bad people doing bad things with, uh, you know, money they shouldn't be doing it with, whether that's human trafficking, whether it's smuggling, whether it's, you know, all sorts of different things that are kind of happening globally, uh, almost, I wouldn't say unchecked, but very largely that's a huge amount of money that's traveling around systems that actually, if we did do something about, would have a societal impact, not just a, a financial impact. So, I mean, I think a lot of the times these things are slightly dehumanized but if you think about the impact of of us not being able to have this the level of uh, controls then actually it's ridiculously big yeah and i mean i'm nodding away which is really helpful on a podcast isn't it um, <laughs> i do that I mean, all like, the time i couldn't agree more because i think one of the things and you know to sort of talk briefly to the tech sprint we did uh, earlier on in the summer that was something that we were really keen to impart and and land with all the participants who are either physically there or were kind of streaming in about that human cost really centering people's mind on why does this matter because you're right the detection rates are low not because there is lack of effort but speaks to the complexity and the breadth but you know if we remember the human cost which sits around human trafficking sexual exploitation slavery um you know terrorism there is a there is a really profound day-by-day cost of not trying to get that those num those detection numbers up mm. um and i think that was something that was so important to us to really kind of land and, and get people thinking about why should we be doing this yeah. so but, what to all of this but one of the th- one of things that i noticed at the text print as a, an outsider regulator looking in and looking at these challenges is a huge amount of frustration uh that more can't be done about this because if there was if there's more we could do with the data if there's more we could actually do to to, to share notes then then surely some more of this must be preventable if it feels like there's there's a, a been uh, over time uh you know a, a real failure collectively among all these organizations trying to prevent this happening to get to this stage where there's such a low detection rate mm. but there's also a, a weird complexity when you're running it inside a business is that your requirements on different types of crimes are different so sanctions you absolutely cannot allow kim jong-un to have a prepaid card in the uk you know like it's it's sort of binary whereas something like uh, politically exposed people which is relatively similar because it's usually around onboarding the the rules are actually quite vague and interpreted person by person certain types of crimes you have to deal with a lot the ones that really hurt you which is when you know 
because you don't you don't start a business wanting anyone like this to do it but criminals are incredibly innovative they're literally the the most innovative people on the planet to be to be blunt they'll find the easiest way to extract the most value as fast as possible and knowing that there's a human being who's either like oh, there was one person who had a like we always used to put a video around where someone had lost all the money she'd saved for hiring for a caravan because she'd been duped on an email well the rules on how what you're supposed to be doing as the financial institution versus how you feel emotionally about a human being versus the risk-based approach versus what's required under different rule sets is actually really quite complex to handle but at the end it's a human being you know there's there's nothing worse than discovering that that something you're running is being used in a way that is really pretty unpleasant mm. i think um i mean i think that's probably the name of the, the podcast right there it's like uh, criminals are really innovative i like that but it's they're, they're, they're amazing like they're, they i mean they, they literally sit on the edge of every new prepaid card um scheme um we, we we would actually ring the new prepaid card schemes and say this is the most recent crime we've seen because they wait for a new one to be announced and they slam them you know so you can stop the last crime of the last prepaid scheme that that launched but the amount of people who start and don't think it's going to be a thing is extraordinary. And they, they just go for the weakest, weakest link. Mm. Well, I, I guess to, to that point, um, you know, the, the, uh, the narrative a lot actually at the, the, the FCA's tech sprint was the uh, it takes a network to catch a network, which was something that I heard sort of a lot from that. I mean, how, how does that play out in reality, I guess, you know, to, to both of you guys? Because as you say, Simon, it's, there's an inherent... Uh, fear sometimes of from banks of sharing information or opening up in terms of the sort of collective of that, but I completely agree with the sentiment of it. Is until it's a uh, an everybody problem rather than an individual organizational problem, then actually it's not going to be. I mean, we're never going to solve this. Is no, probably there. No, and I mean, I speak, it speaks to your point about innovation. I mean, you know, they are clearly exceptionally good, unfortunately, at what they do. To your point, David, about, you know, it takes a network to defeat a network. I think, you know, what we learned from the textbook we did a year ago was actually trying to kind of really hone in on the problem statement. So we knew, we know, for example, that detection rates are low. We know that this is something globally that regulators and uh, institutions of whatever complexion are really keen uh, to tackle uh, and to kind of really uh, improve kind of the way they are doing that. But what our tech sprint last year showed us was actually, you know, in order to really try and get some traction on this, we needed to hone in on what the problem was. And the problem was around data sharing. And I think it speaks to the range of different, you know, that the, the, the number of different crimes we talk about when we talk about financial crimes, uh, the size of the institutions involved, the complexity and the volume of transactions that occur. So actually honing in on how do we d- better share data within and across uh, institutions and jurisdictions started to enable us to get mm. to that. So what do we mean when we talk about it takes a network to share a network? How do we really put some flesh on the bones of that? And mm. I think that's where we were trying to get to with this tech sprint was taking that conversation on yeah. so we could really say, okay, so that's the problem. Now, how do we start to kind of really unpack this mm. in a more detailed way around some of the technologies that we know are starting to kind of emerge mm. and help us? And this is a, this is evolving. I think a few years ago, 
if you looked at this, you'd see lots of blockers from different bits of law and regulation around the world, of which privacy is, is, is one area, but it's not the only area. So you have this interplay between uh, banking secrecy rules in some countries, uh, sometimes privacy and data protection rules, very often also restrictions on sharing suspicious activity reports and red flags outside of countries or with counterparties. Uh, and there's a whole interplay. And sometimes privacy gets used as a bit of a, either a, a scapegoat or just a shorthand and you, you peel away that and go, actually, it's not around privacy, but sometimes it is. I think what's changed in the last couple of years isn't those rules. Those rules are still there and there's absolutely more work that could be done around gateways and, and, and enabling more legal sharing of data. But it's the way the technology has advanced so there's more stuff you can do around homomorphic encryption, secure multi-party mm. computing, those kind of areas where you're saying, okay, you know what, we, maybe we don't have to share all the data all the time. Maybe we just need to be able to find ways to generate insights we can share with one another and go that way instead. Mm. And is that, um, I mean sort of now as to, to, to ask the point around, I mean, how, how is this traditionally managed in an organisation probably spells to that? Because I think technology is such a, a potential enabler for moving this agenda forward. But technology is not something that necessarily big incumbent organisations is uh, are, you know, famous for at this stage. No, I, I mean, I... I'd agree. So, I mean, the way one would traditionally deal with... I was about to do speech marks in the air, which, again, wouldn't be helpful. So the way <laughs> one would traditionally deal with this is, I was saying, I think about it in two parts. So the first part is onboarding. Hmm. So that is traditionally identifying and verifying the identity of your customer. So the beloved thing of go to your branch with your passport and your bank statements. Um, and then once a customer is onboarded, transaction monitoring to spot suspicious activity. Um, I would say over recent years, the way particularly new startups and challenges have gone around the first part of that, identification and verification, is noticeably different from a lot of the incumbents. So increasingly you have online identification and verification. I would say traditionally most of the traditional players have looked down their noses at that. You know, having worked for large banks with large branch networks, what's less safe? A 20-year-old in a branch trying to spot a phony passport or an online video that is actually looked at by a specialist who is familiar with this type of thing. And, and doing it for a thousand other businesses. Precisely. much more skilled. <laughs> so. um, but it's quite an interesting example of how, you know, your gut instinct is, oh, no, face-to-face is best, but actually who's doing that checking? Mm. Transaction monitoring, I've I've... I've honestly um, always found curious because it's the stock answer, or we do transactions monitoring, we look for suspicious activity. Well, I've onboarded a client. I probably don't know what is or is not normal for them for three to six months. Oh, and that just happens to be the time when most people commit uh, money laundering crimes. So I think transaction monitoring is a necessary part of the toolkit which you cannot avoid but I think it is um, tokenism is too strong a word but it is it is always by definition going to be a blunt and ineffective tool which gets better over time um, and often in this case you don't have time the the points around information sharing I found particularly interesting because I think um, information sharing within large institutions has often been very poor, let alone across institutions. Um, and again, if you if you think about 
this in human terms. You have an individual taking a decision in a relatively short, pressured time frame. Um, if they don't have relevant information at their fingertips, it might as well not be there. The fact that it's in a database somewhere within the bank, if they could find the right person in four days, doesn't help. So I think whilst there's a lot that can be done at an industry level, intra-institution is also very important. Mm. And, and, I, and I guess, you know, well, to, you know, the challenger view of this, I mean, how how does this managed uh, in a, uh, you know, a, a younger organization? Does it differ from what NASA was sort of looking at? Or is it, uh, and actually, I guess, from a technological perspective, is anything being enabled differently? Yeah, I'm, I'm actually... Very happy to have the FCA and ICO in the in the room because there's actually a very specific question that works for both of you. So initially, um, the way it's worked is um, uh, a lot of the young fintechs got together. Um, it was actually I left Monzo and then went to Loot and we gathered together a group that's now um, I think about 200 in the UK. It's in the Netherlands. It's in New York. It's in San Francisco. Honestly, it's a monthly meeting, a Slack group, and they all know each other, so they share typologies. Mm -hmm. That's the best we can do at mm -hmm. the moment is share typologies. There's a very cool re um, typology just meaning, um, uh, I'm trying to think for the audience how to explain it. It's just the, the rules that you'd see of a particular type of crime. And it's a way to, to remove specificity, is that the word I'm going to go with, um, uh, around the data you share. So that's kind of been super helpful. And we also share the best tools. So no one really competes in this space. So if you've got a good ID verification tool, you share it. If you've got a good transaction monitoring tool, you share it. Now, the big thing that everybody knows that they want to do in this space is share four or five bits of information with each other when they see criminality on their platform. So name, date of birth, um, postal address, email, phone number, I guess. Did I just say that one already? And share it. And, and, and in theory, that makes a lot of sense because if we, we know that if you, attack, if you attack one site, you're going to attack the others. But to share it all makes sense in most cases, but the problem is actually not when it works, but when it doesn't work. So what happens if you ping to another bank or another fintech saying, this person, take a look at this person? Well, the question is, why? Because they may not be committing criminality on the other bank. So are you treating them unfairly under FCA rules? And are you breaching any concerns around that kind of black box uh, sharing of data under ICO rules? Which, as you say, the technology exists around decentralized identities and all sorts that could... But it's, it's, it would it would transform the ability to break those networks down. And there's so much appetite for it amongst the heads of financial crime in, in all those industries. Nobody competes in the fintech world. They, they um, collaborate, I suppose, is the right word. Mm. So I, I guess it's an interesting challenge because I know that piece of technology would be amazing, but the problem would be what if I've identified a criminal and it's flagged up on someone else's um, system and then they're not committing crime in that other bank? Am I treating them unfairly by doing anything with that? And the second question is what are your concerns around sharing the information? So, I mean, this is one of the things we saw, wasn't it, in the tech sprint around kind of how you anonymize that information so that you are almost, you're to a degree remo removing that subjectivity of I'm sharing this because I have this suspicion. So you're removing that, those identifiers. I think it's really, it's really pertinent and it goes to the heart of it. I don't have the, I don't have the answers. Right. And I think, you know, what was, what was really clear coming through from all the different teams at the tech sprint was this is exactly what they were wrestling with was how do you share that information in a way that removes the the kind of the ability to see the individual at the heart of it so you're just sharing some core identifiers to see if it has similar pings mm. of concern on their systems as well right. um 
it's something that we are, you know, we are kind of very keen to continue to explore to see how that how that works in practice. Because as you say, it goes to the heart of some of the challenges that we know exist. Right, and 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 this is a a well worn path in some ways. I I've come across many schemes over the years uh, with with originally with with larger banks, legacy banks, saying, well, we're going to try and build some big data warehouse and store everything there and, 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 and compare notes and find patterns there. And, and, and they, they, all, they all didn't get off the ground in the end. And there was a mix there of, of sometimes privacy and banking secrecy concerns, uh, but also concerns around data quality and liability as well. You know, if, if you're going to tell somebody else that you think you have an issue, then, you know, then, then, then to what extent can they trust what you're saying? To what extent are you liable for what you're, you're saying as well? It, it's, there's, there's a lot of things to, to, to cover off. Um, from the ICO's point of view, um, we're not... Putting actually the technicalities and legalities to one side, if you talk about the, you know, the, the kind of just our gut instinct, you know, what we are concerned about is bulk monitoring of individuals in these areas and of people being unfairly treated. Uh, what we are not against, again, at a gut instinct point of view, is the idea that if you have a reason and proportionate uh, basis for thinking that there is an issue, that there shouldn't be some way to pursue that issue. One of the things I think is really interesting from the, the text print is one of the things I learned actually was there were a number of solutions that are going, well, you know what, we can use homomorphic encryption to pick out where these, these red flags are and then we can tell you where these red flags are. And, and a number of the uh, banks involved were saying, well, that, that's useless to us because all you've given us is, is, is a name with a red flag and, 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 no, and no detail behind it. And then I've got to go and find out whether I've got an issue on my side and if there's no issue on my side, I've got a, red, a blinking light on my dashboard and, and no, no basis for that. So you have this situation where you then either have to say, well, we're going to share more information or not. So we've got to get to a, a, a pathway, you know, well, as you suggest, where there's, that there's ways to compare notes and patterns and typologies and ways to compare red flags when an, a, a, an organisation has identified that and share that in a way which is secure and proportionate that can then be pursued but right now those mechanisms aren't in place and one of the problems is also policy because if you're running a very small e-money prepaid scheme you are going to be different than a a national bank so every one of those red lights is actually going to it, it might risk overloading the financial crime team in the bank and they wouldn't be able to address the bigger crimes. Which is also, by the way, I'll freely, to answer your question now, loot doesn't exist. I'll be completely honest. One of the biggest challenges if you're a C-suite of, um, you know, COO, it's reporting up to you, is the crimes that take the most amount of time are honestly the little ones. And it's really frustrating and you have to manage that risk with the team. And if they're sitting there talking with someone who's been defrauded or whatever... That's extremely upsetting for them, but it might truthfully not be where you should be placing your attention from a risk perspective, because you may have like a, a, a gang attack that's much more relevant in a, a type of cr- criminality, whereas actually, you know, um, I, I'm not going to name a city. I'm going to have to n- name a random town in the UK, and somebody believes that they're sort of that small town's biggest gangster, and, and truthfully, they're doing it in the tens or the hundreds, and they're very noisy and they're extremely frustrating and they're very rude to your staff through the customer support channels and all sorts of stuff. But actually, truthfully, that's not where you should be applying your time as the functional MLRO or whatever you're doing at that point. And so that's a really interesting challenge in a, in a limited team that I don't think any live business would be honest about, but it's, it's, it's very challenging. Mm. Um, well, in that, is that 
Uh, I mean, just to sort of summarise this slightly, we're, you know, criminals are incredibly well funded, very innovative. We've actually got big incumbent organisations where actually technology is not at the sort of forefront of, of kind of innovations to share these things. Equally, I mean, to your point, we're in a situation where even if you shared them does one bank trust another bank's red flag or not without really understanding what it is that's within their modelling to actually say whether that still is a thing or not? And even if they do, do they want another red flag given the thousand things that they're already doing anyway? So, I mean, how do we even, again, no magic wand, but how do we even challenge this? Because it's clearly something we have to do something about. It's clearly something that actually with all of the advancements from a technological perspective that actually we increasingly can do something about. You know, I, I sort of believe that actually many of the new systems that are being built, almost the regulatory side of things should be automated, not uh, not a monitoring of a, a system, but actually passing information out to people as, such as yourselves on a, a real-time basis. You know, when everything is real-time and everything is inte- intelligent, then actually our ability to deal with these things, not as an individual organization, but as a, um, a uh, you know, um, a pan-geographical kind of setup should actually be a lot greater. Um, but I guess it's the, the billion-dollar question, really, is like, well, what do we do? I mean, I, I, I actually feel there's, there's a lot one can do. But, I, I mean, I think it requires um, probably two things. So one is resourcing, and two is will. So if I, if I just take your last point... This will. Yeah, well, everyone needs a will. That's why everyone's gone it's very so So, you know, if I take your last point, real-time uptakes and data, that's great, but you need someone at the other end with the capacity to review that, sift that, and do something with it. Um, the, the, but the culture point, I, I suppose it goes back to the, the issue we discussed first time round, which is it's very easy to think about this as a... A mechanical process. I do my IDNV, I do my transaction monitoring, I do them to a standard which is good enough to not get in trouble with the regulator, but also not so onerous that it puts off my customers. Um, and I suppose if you lose sight of the fact that there's a human suffering at the end of this, you are naturally going to be cautious. Why should I rely on another bank's data or share data when that could make me liable for something whereas I think if you look at the human cost it probably makes you a little bit bolder and a little bit less conservative as in I'm willing to raise my reasonable suspicions emphasis on reasonable but I'm willing to raise them whereas actually I think in the current environment I'll just keep my head below the parapet and then nothing bad can happen to me Mm. is often the default instinct and you know one can understand that it's human Today Customers are demanding greater value from financial services. They expect more agility, innovation and security than ever before. Most financial institutions are held back by the shackles of closed legacy systems that limit transparency, block innovation and ignore customers' demands. Finastra has a bold vision to unlock the potential of people and business. They've created a platform for open innovation in the world of financial services with FusionFabric.cloud. Their solutions span retail, transaction lending, and treasury and capital markets on-premise and in the cloud. Start your transformation journey today with Finastra. 
Cybos, the world's premier financial services event, is landing in London's XL on the 23rd to the 26th of September. More than 8,000 decision makers and experts from across the globe will gather to shape the future of finance, and the opportunities for fintechs will be bigger than ever. Specially priced fintech tickets are available. Don't miss out. Book today at cybos.com. Is this um, is this just part of doing business today? You know, we're increasingly living in a digital world. Everything is moving towards you know mobile and uh, you know internet communications in its broadest sense. So, I mean, f- is fraud really just a business decision? Because it can, essentially, we could make it really, really easy and shut down all the websites. You know, what I mean, but the experience would be terrible. And actually, I, I guess we're seeing different organisations take different attitudes to risk when it comes to even like from a KYC perspective, even just like the login procedures of many organizations, you can see different attitudes to risk in different departments. Some are using, you know, pin secure devices to make it harder, but equally, I mean, somebody like a Monzo, you don't, there's literally no pin, there's no nothing. You, you're not doing your stopping people getting in, you're monitoring more what people are actually doing on the back end in terms of transactional behavior. So again, it feels like the only probably out from this is like intelligence. Like how do we uh, weaponize the intelligence against people trying to do bad things? You've got to, this is an arms race. We've got to stay slightly ahead of the criminals in this space. Outs, we're never going to be able to outsmart them. Yeah, and you, you can't have a zero, uh, you, you, one of the interesting things people don't quite get is if you if you took an approach of zero criminality, you're actually going to you're highly likely to trip FCA rules about treating your customers fairly, because what you will do by default, because always your challenge from one of the challenges from an FCA perspective is 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 how do you deal with the false positives? Mm-hmm. So I've identified someone who is. I may not want to onboard, or I have identified someone who's transacting in an unusual pattern, but we all transact in unusual patterns. Like, no one's spending is normal. And if you have that person and they're a false positive and you just have a, like, if they trigger, I'm going to throw them off the platform, then you're breaking other FCA rules. So you actually, it's weird, you kind of have to allow a, a certain level of criminality to happen to make sure that you don't treat all other customers unfairly it's like a weird balancing act i'm not saying you allow criminality it's like if you go to zero you can't you're going to exclude you're going to treat some people unfairly by 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 on the false positive side Oh, it's, well, I've, I've phrased that wrong because everybody, everybody's smiling. He said that TCF drives money laundering, which I'm pretty sure the regulator wouldn't love. Um, but we did, um, we missed a trick here, and this is, and maybe in the future we can do this better, but there was a good couple of years where both the fourth anti-money laundering directive and the GDPR were being negotiated in Brussels. And I, I said at the time, uh, before as a regulator, wouldn't be great if actually the two teams doing that sat down and worked out how those two things work together so that we could more easily get hold of data to share it in the right ways to, to combat this. Uh, and did that happen? Well, no, it didn't happen. And so the, these, both these two things came out with, with, with very little reference to one another. Uh, and, and we still have two regimes where, where there are tensions. Mm. And, and we, we need to, at some point, get better at that. because And that's a long-term play. That, you know, there's, there's lots of shorter things we can do. But fundamentally, I think we all agree that there has to be a better way of doing this. And, and, there, and, and from a privacy point of view, it can be done. It just has to be proportionate and measured. Mm. But it does need the regimes to be better aligned than they are. Yeah, and I think so. 
clearly, I would not agree with... Uh, with I phrased it wrong. <laughs> a, a, a bit of tension. Just said. Right? Um, <laughs> but it did introduce an interesting sort of frisson into the discussion where everyone went... <laughs> yeah. um, but, uh, I mean, I think one of the things that was really quite powerful around sort of the edges of the tech sprint, so away from the kind of day-to-day teams sort of really trying to kind of break through some of the some of the use cases that were, were in front of them, was actually some of the, the level of engagement from international regulators we had. And I think to your point about collaboration and actually understanding the kind of patchwork, because if you think about, you know, the sort of global reach, not just of crime, but for the firms operating with, with customers across the world in different jurisdictions, actually the notion that somehow the regulatory community still has still works in a very sort of piecemeal basis is just not going to work. And I think what was really interesting about the discussions we were having at the Tech Sprint was that you had regulators from all across the world coming in quite significant numbers to observe, to kind of see what the art of the possible was in terms of kind of how the mechanics of the Tech Sprint were working, but also to have those conversations about, well, this is actually what we do, and this butts up against this piece, but actually here are some pieces where it works in concert, and actually can we learn from that? And I think those kind of, those conversations as well are absolutely critical to understand where can we start to kind of influence whether it's uh, you know the joint money laundering intelligence task force where it's FATF whatever it might be there has there are lots there are fora for getting for trying to kind of leverage these conversations and not solely relying despite how innovative and interesting it is on the tech to start breaking down some of these challenges yeah Yeah, I I, I mean I'd agree so I think I think you know if one just looks at the increased ability to analyse, sort, share data, is that going to help? Absolutely, of course it will. Is that going to be a silver bullet, which means you don't have to worry about culture, process? No, definitely not. Um, the, I mean, the only... Uh, I, I'm generally quite unsympathetic to the argument that principles-based regulation means there's so much uncertainty we can't do anything. I mean, it also means that you can be flexible and innovative in how you meet the rules, often in a more effective way. So you can't, you've got to take the rust with the smooth in that respect. And frankly, you know, the regulator can't regulate for every detailed situation. So there's always going to have to be some degree of principles-based regulation. You, you can't es- escape that. Probably the only thing I was going to add on, on your original question, which is, is this essentially a cost of doing business? So I think I think to some extent that it, it is. You're never going to stop it. But I think also to some extent people are perfectly willing to accept that. So if I give you an obvious example, contactless. So if someone steals your card, it is now much easier for them to go and do admittedly relatively low-level transactions before they hit an automatic buffer. But society is generally happy to live with that risk for the convenience of not having to put your pin in and waste 30 seconds. So... There is a continual risk appetite versus convenience trade-off. And I now sound like my dad. But if, if anything, the balance seems to be shifting more and more to convenience versus an instant gratification versus um, I'll take 30 seconds up front to prevent the risk of my suffering for because I'm not an idiot. Who, who loses their card only one who's doing? So I think, I think the more that happens in society in general, the more actually you'll see a clamour to dispense with what people will see as 
an unnecessary check until it happens to them, and then they wonder how you let them do it in the first place. Mm. Yeah, and, and rules-based is... I mean, this is good. You have to do principle-based. And I'm, I'm going to try and get myself out, climb out the hole here <laughs> with a very, very specific example, right? I'm not going to name which, which um, new bank it was, but I went through the onboarding process and just was cancelled. And I'm about 99% sure I know why that is. And that's because there's someone on a politically exposed list who's called William White. Um, I know that because I've looked at those lists. Now, I'm not being treated fairly there. They're just literally taking a point blank. And there will be a lot of people who will experience a similar thing. And I, there is no other rational reason I can think why that bank did that to me. And they're taking such an aggressive approach and such a rules-based approach that you just think, well, actually, that's, that's not fair. Like, you know, and, and, that, and I'm not sort of worried about which bank it is. I won't mention it. But, um, and that's your story and you're sticking to it. Right? That's my story that, and I'm sticking that, to that. it. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, like it, 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 it's that thing. It's, that's, that's where the tension is. It's quite sort of human. But it's, it's bad business as well, isn't it? I mean, they've lost yeah, you as a customer and everyone surely wants to have you as a customer. And as an employee. Yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. But, I think it, but I think it does speak to something which whichever direction the tech is going to enable us to go into there has to be that balance and that contracting around where how do you enable your staff to deploy their judgment against whatever algorithms or decision making tools that you have at play mm-hmm. one two i think going back to to your point that you were making earlier it was it's just about you know if with with the kind of getting dis, not distracted but um, focusing on high volumes of relatively low low amounts of fraud, for mm. example, against quite significant transactions, which might be actually speaking much more into the kind of money laundering, you know, funding of funding of crime sort of space. And I think it's that balance as well, which is how how we, how how do we how does the tech and tooling enable collectively to balance off those different different points given what we've talked about of the spectrum of financial crime yeah and you and, can and one way this sorry. is well one way this is going to go in the future is is use of ai uh, for transaction monitoring and elsewhere and and there i think we come back to this question of trust and transparency uh, if we do end up in a stage where actually we're using uh, better machine learning, whether it's real-time transaction monitoring or just looking at the large data sets that we have, uh, to really pick out new patterns and identify and address uh, you know, possible criminality, then we've got to make sure that remains transparent and explainable. Otherwise, Will's experience happens writ large, but people suddenly find themselves being having transactions denied, cut off. Um, and either the bank won't tell them what to do or, or in some cases perhaps is unable to explain what exactly happened. Uh, but that's the direction we're going, and that's not necessarily a dystopian world. I think that there's a huge amount of promise in that. Uh, but if we don't bring explainability uh, along with the AI, then we have a big issue. Yeah, because mm. one of the weird ones about, um, I guess it must be about three years ago now, so it was at the height of the Islamic State um, uh, expansion, was um, obviously there was a lot of people, uh, there were a number of people leaving from the UK and, and going to join. Now, the patterns that you could see that were 
weird to have to manage. People were like, do they look like they're going on a camping trip? Because that's what they'd seen as a transaction. And that was literally the advice we were given, you know, are they going to, um, I'm trying to think, is, is Black still, yeah. didn't go into administration yet, <laughs> if they were buying tents and all that kind of stuff. Now that was kind of like, well, what are we going to do? Because we've got a student population who might want to go camping. Mm-hmm. But the bit that was really helpful is if they transact in this particular neighborhood in Istanbul, they are highly suspicious because that's the staging post to um, cross the border. So it's kind of, it's weird and, and, and that's, that's ever moving. It, you know, it's not going to be, it's not like a fixed thing. You can't set a set of rules, don't have anyone who buys camping equipment. Well, and well, also one, one, of the, one of the tech sprint teams was looking at better sharing of typologies and, and actually making typologies machine readable and, and, and sharing patterns that way. And I thought that was really interesting. So from my point of view, there's no privacy issues there at all. So this, this is a great big green tick from me. But, but also, how do we get from, you know, I was kind of surprised as the, the outsider there to, to realise that most typologies are still being shared in pretty rudimentary ways and then being ingested by different banks in, you know, however they saw fit. So how do we get to a stage where these factors, and we can kind of go, you know, there'll be a bit of geolocation, there'll be a bit of the amounts, there'll be a bit of the goods being bought. We, we can articulate this. These are not hard things to get in some kind of code and then get shared better. So I thought that idea was really interesting. Yeah, Sh- it, sorry, sorry, I was going to say shared and used better. So, um, I mean, there are a couple of points there, but... There, I mean, there is a lot of information sharing across the industry. Could it be better? Probably. But I suppose it's... It's by the time your AML guy goes to that meeting, writes his notes, it goes through his governance and then disseminates itself as one sentence in a comms update to branch off seven months later. And, and it's, it's too late. So it's making use of that information instantaneously, so to speak. And well, even in a fintech where we had that information, I mean, literally that's a live example. We were given it, we could come back, it was a small team. By the time we sort of knew what to do with it we were like well okay let's put that 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 territory and then we never really did anything with the camping because it just seems such strange advice um but the the geolocation we did so you can't and then by that point the the, the news cycle had well the you know history had moved forward and it wasn't it was and no that, longer and, a major uh, issue and that's so. a very good example in as much as you know thanks to technology the ability to set up restrictions based on geography city even individual retailers is amazing and mm. instantaneous it's the human organisational factor of taking that information, going through the process and saying we should do X. Yeah. That's the impediment there, actually. I mean, you know, to a certain degree, given criminals are not that, you know, dumb, nobody's going to be rocking up to somewhere really crazy and then just, like, using their Monzo card. Do you know what I mean? Like, so is it an increasingly cashless society actually an advantage in this instance? Because essentially we're able to document better than ever transactions, behaviours, you know, international uh, movements in terms of... So is is a... I know cashless society has been put up a a lot as a a potential risk for leaving people behind, but does it essentially address a whole swathe of potential crime that could happen? There is... The majority of criminality is done in physical cash. I mean, I don't think anyone needs... I don't think I'm saying anything unusual there, but, like, that's the truth. I mean, the volume of, of criminality is done in physical cash. It's one of... We're on the wrong podcast. It's, a, it's an interesting one that comes up on the Blockchain Insider because, actually, the reality is that certain cryptocurrencies are really, really traceable, significantly more traceable than physical cash, whereas... And physical cash is, is a major problem. Is that, I mean, is that true? Yes. Online fraud? Uh, no, so certain cryptocurrencies are incredibly... Just normal online fraud. No block, no cryptocurrency, just... 
good old fashioned, send me your bank details so I can transfer your million pounds from Nigeria. Yeah, but like the, the <laughs> I don't want to sound too tin hat, but like the volume of money that's in fifty pound notes, hundred dollar notes, and five hundred euro notes, I think it's 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 ridiculous. I mean, no one, you don't walk into a shop with a five hundred euro note, so we have to be realistic where that's being used. Yeah, getting rid of five hundred euro notes would be like the biggest single thing you could do. Yeah, I mean, again, as a privacy regulator, we have slightly mixed feelings about this because. Uh, going to a cash society means everyone's spending is tracked, which is the same thing we're talking about. But you know, turning it around in terms of having a surveillance state, you know, then 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 that that's that's worrying. And the ability for just to have cash and spend it on what they want, physical cash, and not worry about who's going to be seeing what they're doing, that's kind of nice. Mm-hmm. So so there's 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 two sides to that coin, and uh, I don't think we've quite thought through either side yet. Mm. Yeah, I guess, again, it's uh, it's an element here where technology is advancing, but not necessarily sort of resolving it. So, I mean, I don't think we're going to come to the answer. I, I hoped, you know, in, in an hour we'd come to an answer on we this one. We'd all be rich if we did. <laughs> yeah. but, but, I mean, I, this is the reason why I guess RegTech is being so heavily invested in right now. You know, FinTech was was definitely the, the sort of darling for a real uh, good amount of time in terms of the, the, the UK, and RegTech is really being heavily invested in to try and find point-to-point solutions for many of these things. But I think if anything off the back of this conversation, this is whack-a-mole. Like we can hit on the head one thing as hard as we like, but criminals in other countries and other uh, opportunities are going to continue to spring up. Um, I guess the one thing on our side is um, major criminal organizations not that good at collaboration, potentially. <laughs> yeah, it's true. They probably won't be joining sort of networks to collaborate anytime Indeed. soon. Um, but no, I think you're right. I mean, I think, what? yes, it... it, it I think it has been whack-a-mole. Um, I think the detection rates kind of sort of demonstrate that quite clearly. Um, I mean, I think for us, you know, the, the tech sprint last year and this year was around really trying to kind of convene that wider community to say, OK, how do we try and harness the component parts which enable us to have the regulatory conversations, have the tech conversations, have the industry conversations, the legal policy implication conversations to try and sort of start driving this in in a in a concerted fashion in in, in one di- in in one direction and i think kind of if if anything from the from the text print that we saw a couple of months ago yes there were some fantastic things coming through from the from the teams and that was really exciting to see but it was also the conversations around so what are the implications from a privacy point of view what does this mean and having those conversations where often the people were in 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 one room was something that has been quite significantly remarked upon by by quite a lot of the participants there i'd be i'd be interested in hearing what um emphasis is government placing on this right now so i mean they've got their you know the economic plan that was published recently has you know is a significant focus on financial crime um for us as a regulator it's one of our you know top priorities uh you've got the uh the fataf um has, has uh, placed actually t- tech and innovation as part of one of their priorities as well so our government yes certainly as part of their economic crime um plan has got it i meant more in terms of like the day-to-day mute music are you coming under pressure um, I, mean, I appreciate they have other fish to fry right now as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's a, that's a, a beefing feast, isn't it? Um, I think it's 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 very clear, kind of the, the kind of priority and direction of travel that we all need to be going in. Yeah, isn't it? But one of the interesting things is if technology is making our lives drastically better at an ever increasing speed, which most people are feeling, that means the criminals 
c c crime will always move forward. I mean, like, unless you're a hobbyist, you don't go sheep rustling anymore. Um, but, um, That's something I didn't expect yeah, yeah, yeah. to discuss on this podcast. <laughs> well, you're welcome to join my club. I'm going to find this community of hobby sheep rustlers. This sounds fantastic. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, things change. You know, that was a, 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 a lucrative crime in, in rural societies. We now live in a society here. So, so it, it's it, like these criminals will move faster and faster. And, you know, you, if you look at the cryptocurrencies, Bitcoin is a dreadful coin to do criminality in because it's traceable. Monero is pretty frightening and some horrible stuff's going on in that. So kind of the speed that we need to catch up with them is, is, is frightening. I, th I think on an on upbeat note, of which there are few in this area, um, and this game came through the text print, I, I, I think there's, there's been quite a few different technologies out there floating around in the kind of privacy enhancing technology and anonymization space which have been nascent for a long time and and I until recently got quite cynical about so homomorph encryption being a great example and and they and they they're really breaking through now and they're getting to a stage where there's real firms doing real things and it's getting you know to a point where it's they're going to market and so that makes it optimistic that we're going to hit a bit of a wave now in the next few years where these data sharing technologies enable us to do much more with these big data sets until I've been scared to do. Mm. So, so, so that's something to watch, I think. Well, I think definitely the, um, you know, uh, the the good guys are advancing as quickly as the bad guys, which is great. You know, definitely the if you look at the the presentations this year, the tech sprint, and actually even the organisations who had won it the previous year, mm -hmm. what they'd managed to achieve in a year. Um, you know, these things are really sort of definitely moving forwards. But I think we probably better wrap up today's show. I think I probably need to go and look at Will White's employer checks just to yeah. make sure <laughs> we've done everything. And we've travel history. Yeah, there's a few things to look into. But on that note it wraps up this show so thank you very much to everybody for joining us Francesca where can people find out more about you and the FCA come and look on our on our website fca.org.uk and you'll find more information about our tech sprints and our reg tech and uh, fintech activity very good and you Simon use your website and also we're going to carry on working with the FCA on the tech sprints because we had lots of fun <laughs> very good well uh, I'm on Twitter at willwhite11fs yes. well, I don't do Twitter because I live in the 19th century uh, but my email is nasa.11fs.com. There you go. And for me, you can find me over on Twitter at David Breer. Don't forget to subscribe to this episode and tell us what you thought about it over on Twitter on at Fintech Insiders. We really love reading those reviews, so please drop us one soon. Thanks very much. Goodbye.